Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for... How I'd fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It was a day of high drama yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, in the corridors of power. A few people were fired. A few people were hired. Boris Johnson once more destroyed Sir Keir Starmer at the dispatch box in Prime Minister's questions. And the evening ended with a bizarre press conference with President Joe Biden in the White House and some guy down under, as he referred to him, uh, the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. The trouble is that unless you're a political anorak or someone who exists inside the Westminster bubble, you probably don't really actually care that Michael Gove has been moved further away from the centre of power into a department that has tentacles all over Whitehall, do you? You're probably not bothered that Dominic Raab has been officially named the Deputy Prime Minister while being removed from the Foreign Office for spending too much time on the beach. And you might not even give a stuff that Nadeem Sahawi has been moved to run the Department of Education after spending the last few months organising to get people vaccinated. It's all part of the business of government. But what does it actually mean to the ordinary people of this country? That's the question I'm going to be asking you today. And I'll suggest to you the answer is not very much. We'll be asking William Plouston, leader of the SDP, what we can expect to see done differently. And of course, we need to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're joined by former police officer Norman Brennan. He's not happy with the way the police have been treating those M25 tree-hugging protesters insulate Britain, asking them if there's anything they need rather than hurling them off the roadways. No way to protect law and order, is it? Or to allow people to go about their daily business of actually getting to work. Plus, Professor Carol Sikor is here as well with his take on the latest COVID warnings about safeguarding the NHS. He's also got plenty to say about why cancer care really needs to be a topic of conversation. As ever, we need to hear your stories of how you're getting on with your doctors and the NHS in general. There's plenty of royal news as well. We'll be asking Dawn Neeson just why the Duchess of Netflix is so keen to show that she's wearing the trousers in her latest pictures with the Prince of Herbertness, of course. And whether Prince Andrew is really going to have to face the music in New York. Helen Dale is here as well, uh, giving us the benefit of her take on the week. And what on earth this Australian military submarine deal is all about. Plus, I'm trying to find my bag. Has anybody seen it? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, wouldn't you know it? Everybody's terribly excited about this reshuffle. People talk about Boris Johnson being in the prime position of his life, being in charge of the party, absolutely surrounding himself with Boris fans, making sure that all the people uh, who are closest to him now in the cabinet are, in fact, people that believe in his vision, uh, believe in what he wants to do, believe in supporting him and will forever be uh, part of his gang. Well, that's all very well. But to be honest, what does it mean to you and me? Because at the end of the day, let's not forget that we are still not very happy about the way that they've been rolling out the idea of vaccinating 12 to 15 year old children. We're still not happy about this nonsense that they might have to go backwards as we enter autumn because we must protect the NHS once again and COVID restrictions might have to be brought back in. We're still not happy about any of that. None of that has actually changed. You know, if we had uh, an opposition worth a fag end, something might have happened yesterday and maybe Sir Keir Starmer would have done something other than be shouted down by Boris Johnson. I have to say, does perform very well at Prime Minister's questions when there's a full house of people. 
because Starmer's just absolutely and utterly useless. But let's talk to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, because he's always a voice of reason on these things. And he's also got a view from outside of the metropolitan Westminster bubble. So let's ask William exactly what it all means. William, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I mean... I know that this is meat and drink for political analysts and for people uh, who enjoy, you know, defenestrating and dissecting every single manoeuvre within Downing Street, watching people coming and going and seeing who's being put where. And it's all a bit it's all a bit boring to most people, though, isn't it? Yeah, most of it's SW1 gossip um, that won't make any difference to people's lives at all. Um, I mean, there are two major changes here, Liz Trust to... Foreign Secretary and uh, and Gove to Housing. Uh, Gove to Housing is probably the more interesting one, but again, I mean, he's, a, he's an able man, Michael Gove, and he'll probably try and uh, help out. But unfortunately, the, the government's already lost two years on housing. Uh, they introduced this uh, white paper, tried to get some legislation through the Commons. The Their own Knights of the Shires have rebelled on it. So the zonal planning system that they wanted won't happen. They've lost two years. Uh, but the bigger problem, as always, Mike, is that the government over the various governments over the years have have, t- have disarmed the the state sector in housing mm. so even if gove wanted to do something he can't well we've already seen have we not a sort of a rowing back uh, which we might not be surprised to see of the uh, supposedly shake up of the planning laws because the planning laws were meant to be taken on weren't they by this government they were going to make it easier for houses to actually be built rather than more difficult for houses to be built because there's no doubt that we need houses to be built in this country um so unless he's going to completely reverse the latest reversal um his, his hands are pretty tied aren't they well, they're pretty tied, but honestly, Mike, the, more broadly on housing, they're tied because the Tory party is in the pocket of the big house builders. Yes. And that's been the case for a long time. If you look back to 2019, Electoral Commission's uh, details on, on donations, the Tory party received 11 million from the house building industry. So you won't get any major change until they stop being in the pocket of that vested interest. Um, but as I say, I mean, there's lots of interesting things could be done in in, in, in housing, uh, and 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 you know, you'd have to get more state uh, um, uh, capacity there. You'd have to get a, a government that actually wanted to build some houses and and so on. But I see no hint of it happening. So what you'll you'll have is a, probably a sharpened up uh, level of rhetoric on 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 levelling up. That's what that's the latest uh, slogan they've used. But remember, Mike, do you remember that the slogan they had previously, the Northern Powerhouse? Yes. All the things, I mean, basically the Tories, their focus is on the press and on sloganeering. There's nothing at all. I mean, there's very little from the Labour Party either. You don't confuse slogans with a proper industrial policy. No. Um, we, we think that you, to, to get to reindustrialize, to build the country back properly, you need to have some policies. You can't just do slogan sloganeering. Yeah, but this is the party and the government of slogans, isn't it? I mean, do you remember they used to have these three sl- three word slogans every single week? They come up with a new one, you know, hands, face, space. Uh, then they yeah. had, uh, you know, build back better. You know, those are only really the first two that spring to mind. But I mean, that's mm. the trouble with modern politics is that it's all about slogans. You know, uh, America first. You know, uh, Northern Powerhouse. I mean, there's, there's, there's hordes of people being paid massive amounts of money to come up with this guff. But there's no long-term thinking, Mike, and no. there's no planning. I mean, they can't plan in, in, in virtually no area is the government capable of, of setting out what it wants to do, getting a sensible industrial policy, which if it did, it would have to start training people. It would have to look at industrial capacity. It would, it would have an aim, a published aim probably, of getting manufacturing up from 9% to something like 15. It used to be 30-odd. Yeah. You'd have to have some policy. You'd have to have some trade policies. I mean, look at Liz Truss. Liz Truss was, was lauded for doing rollover deals uh, uh, on, on trade deals around the world, but very little scrutiny, Mike, of, of the detail of what she's actually done. Mm. Take, take one particular deal, the Japan deal from last year. The Japan deal, when you model it, will increase Japanese uh, exports to us by about 80%. It might, if we're lucky, increase uh, UK exports to Japan by about 21%. So that Liz Truss is being applauded doing a trade deal which will increase our trade deficit that's how bad the scrutiny is and it's not just i mean and the government get away with it because there's very few serious people taking them on on this so i'm I'm afraid i'm not until we get a government that's prepared to to plan and and do some long-term thinking 
uh, you're always going to get this sloganeering and the sort of Westminster SW1 bubble of gossip about who's who's zooming who and so on. Yeah, well, exactly right. And I mean, the end of the day was even more really bizarre than the way it started, because we got the tip that there might be a reshuffle in the works quite early in the morning. But this kind of surprise 10pm press conference, I don't think I've seen a more bizarre thing uh, in a while. You know, Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison and Joe Biden all doing what apparently didn't really seem to be much of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, a, I don't know, an intentional press conference it looked as if they'd sort of hurriedly put something together um and they didn't and all they seemed to make us want to believe was that don't worry yes these are nuclear powered submarines but they haven't got any nuclear weapons on them and that was what they kept repeating and i was kind of going why are you even doing this yeah it's slightly odd i mean actually in reality something like this couldn't have happened overnight uh you know i mean it would have had to involve quite a lot of discussion and actually a a, a formalized defense pact between Australia, uh, you know, and ourselves in the United States is a very good idea. I, I actually support it. I think it's a good idea. Oh yeah, I think in principle what they're doing is probably smart, but I don't understand yeah. why they announced it the way that they did. No, it's just strange. It was quite. It was cobbled together. I mean, it was, it, it was in the industry. You must think that you know, yesterday was a pretty heavy news day. Mm. I mean, you had a lot going on, and 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 that was an important thing. But as I say, it's quite important. I mean, I. You know, as you know, I've said before, you know, we're an Anglo-Australian family. We, I, I think it's a very good link up. As the world turns, Mike, we're going to have to um, form strong relationships with people that view the word world basically as we do. Mm. Uh, so I'd support it. I, as I say, I think it's it's uh, it's it's Scotty from marketing's probably boosted his chances of re-election. <laughs> yes, I think that's absolutely right. But let's look at what this week has done for for Boris Johnson, because people are now saying He's surrounding himself with, with uh, you know, people who are on his side. Um, whether they were Remainers or not is, is less important now than it used to be. Um, he appears to those inside the Westminster bubble as now unassailable. And it might be that he's, he is. But outside of the Westminster bubble, where you live, for example, what are people actually saying about the Tories? Well, I think the problem is that the the, the, the red wall, as it's called, rejected um, Labour for mainly for cultural reasons and Brexit, you know, for betraying. I mean, you know, we, we didn't ask for very much, Mike. We just thought we might want to govern ourselves. And Labour went against that and yeah. went against the vote. So the, the, the peel off from Labour culturally was already happening. The problem with the Tories is that really they don't they don't really sit on top of this red wall. I mean, as I, as I said, on detail like. Uh, you know the Japan trade deal and things. It, it isn't. It isn't actually in our interest to do that. And if they were serious about manufacturing, they'd have to, to look at um, uh, tax incentives for uh, for research and development and start training people. And they'd have to have a competitive um, exchange rate. None of the Tories won't talk about any of this. Mm. So, you know, where will it matter? I mean, and look at another example: fishing. Um, you know, a sensible government. Well, now, as we've got theoretically le- legal control of our our, our uh, onshore our, our, our waters back, we could build up the British fish- fishing industry if we wanted to. And there's no sign from George Eustace uh, in his department for doing it. So, what will happen to for Hartlepool and South Shields and North Shields and the rest of us uh, come come the you know three or three three uh, four year deadline? Uh, on fishing, um, we won't have the capacity to fish our own waters, and we'll let others do it for us. And that's the la- that's the type of lack of ambition that you get from the government. They're very good at sloganeering, but if they wanted to to address that particular industry for our region, where Grimsby right up to Lossiemouth, they'd have to start. They'd have to have a plan, Mike. That's my point. They'd have to have a plan to get this get get the capacity up, not just to to, to fish, but to process the fish on shore. And they haven't done that. So yeah. that's just. An- well, that's right. And Priti Patel survives the uh, the reshuffle. A lot yeah. of people wondering why. The answer is very obvious. She's popular with the party. But Boris Johnson likes her and doesn't wish to shove her out of the way. But I mean, talk yeah. about slogans and not very much action. You know, she's failed to control uh, the borders. She's failed to stop the illegal migrants from coming in. She's failed uh, to reform the police uh, into some kind of actual force that can be reckoned with. They're still going around, and we'll be talking later to Norman Brennan about this, asking protesters if there's anything they need. I mean, you know, they should be hurling these people off onto the uh, onto the hard shoulder, shouldn't they? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any way Pretty Patel was, would, would lose her job. She's very, very popular with ordinary members of the Tory party. And actually, to be fair to her, I think her instincts on migration are probably right. But the problem is that as an entity, the Tory party seemed utterly inept 
in terms of dealing with it. So they are running an open borders policy. You've got a thousand people arriving illegally some days and the Tories have done nothing about it. And if you have a Tory majority of over 80 and they've done nothing about it, it just means they don't actually want to do anything about it. That's, mm. that's the reality. So, yeah, I mean, and again, look at, look at the recent news on, 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 on the migrant crossings in the channel. Uh, Pretty Patel is, is, is focused on uh, trying to blame the French, trying to turn boats back. Both of these things are irrelevant. If you had a decent policy in place, you'd be able to deal with it. And mm. a decent policy, is, funnily enough, is the Australian policy, which is that you, you have to stop it. You have to stop the trade by disincentivising people from even trying. And we keep being told that the Australian policy is the one to copy. And we keep saying it and we keep hearing it and we keep hearing other people repeat it. But still, it doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen because, as I say, I think they, I think, Mike, they just lack, they, they don't have the bottle to deal with this. You, you, you know, we're on our own in this. The, the, if you, if you have a thousand people just rocking up a, a day, and those are the ones you know about, you're running an open borders mm. policy. You're actually destroying the social contract. People are rocking up, gaining access to a welfare state that they haven't paid for, and and the, and, and and the people are very frustrated about it. But I would say, don't bother turning uh, your attention to the Tories, and Labour would have a, probably a worse policy on this. Oh, I'm sure they would, but that's part of the problem. But stay where you are, because we're going to come back to that, as to what the Labour Party should be doing, because they're having their conference pretty soon, and we want to find out exactly what it is that they stand for. Uh, we're talking to William Closton. We will, of course, take your calls as well, 0344 I want to know today uh, what it is that makes a difference to you in your life that Westminster should be doing, because it's all very well speculating about, you know, who's up, who's down, who's got a new job, who's got a promotion, who's been uh, uh, put out into the pastures. You know, I don't think anybody cares much about that outside of the Westminster bubble. But I'd love to hear from you, because I know that you are much more politically attuned to the way things are in this country than most people think. The people who listen to this show are very much aware of what is going on around them and are also very much aware and very good at producing voting patterns which actually get the right results. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I have lost a briefcase, right? So I'm going to be putting out an APB for it later on. Uh, I'm going to be putting out a picture of it to show you precisely what it looks like so that if you happen to see it, uh, you'll be able to bring it here to the headquarters of Common Sense at News UK. It's a very complicated story. I'll get into it later on. Right now, we're talking about far more important things uh, with William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. William, um, I thought Yesterday, Sir Keir Starmer showed why he can't be for very much longer the leader of the opposition, because he can't handle Boris Johnson in that sort of raucous um, gladiatorial uh, arena, which is the House of Commons when it's full of people. He just doesn't seem to have a clue how to do it. No, he didn't do very well. I mean, it, it, occasionally when it's more forensic um, and he's asking him detailed questions in an empty parliament, he's done reasonably well. But no, it's not going very well. I mean, he, he's got a an impossible job, Starmer, because the voters he needs to attract, um, he can't attract because of his party and his parliamentary party and his own members and their own preoccupations. So he'll never be able to do that. And I think he'll, whatever happens, pretty much he'll, he'll lose the next election. And, uh, and I don't think Labour on the, on the electoral dynamics can actually win uh, without Scotland. And Scotland is, is probably one of the most important things that's happened in politics in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Mm. And I mean, and if that is the case, you know, Boris Johnson has every reason to be very full of himself, doesn't he? Because if he has insulated himself within the party itself, whereby he is unassailable, and unless he does something really stupid, and in his case, it does appear that it would have to be something incredibly stupid and possibly illegal uh, to, mm. to, to lose his, his position in, in the party as its leader, um, mm. he can pretty much stay in for as long as he wants, and maybe he will end up staying in longer than Margaret Thatcher. I don't know about that. I don't think he's a terribly competent person. Um, I think he was very useful to get Brexit across the line, but I don't think he's interested in detail. Um, he, yeah, we he, keep hearing this, though, William, and yet here he is, having just made probably the most, um, uh, shall we say, decisive cabinet reshuffle in his own image. That's what people are saying it is. I don't know about that. I think it's, I mean, it wasn't, it's not the light of nice, the long knives. It's not like Macmillan. It's, it's, you've made two major changes and the other changes he's made 
people like Williamson was not competent to do the job. So he had to make that change. Mm. Uh, he, you know, removed Rab and put a Tory party favourite in uh, the FCO. OK. And then he gave Rab a biscuit with, uh, you know, Deputy Prime Minister. So it's not actually particularly interesting, this reshuffle. No, I think the I think Johnson is very vulnerable, actually, um, from from Sunak. <laughs> I think it's obvious that as, as soon as, I mean, it, it really depends. The Tory party is pretty ruthless in getting rid of people if they feel they can't win. Mm. Um, so it largely will be down to the polls. And as, as Matt Goodwin is excellent on Twitter, at sharing all the, all the recent polls, the polls have narrowed recently. So we'll see how we go. But as I said, I mean, Labour can't win on the electoral dynamics. It doesn't, it's lost all its seats in Scotland. It's losing the red wall. May pick a few, uh, you know, so-called blue wall seats up. But Starmer can't do anything about that, and he can't reposition his party to occupy the space, which is the sort of patriotic left space, because they're not very patriotic. And I say, I've said before, Starmer's biggest problem is that you can't spend three and a half years being the architect to uh, undermine the biggest vote in British political history, and then suddenly get a British flag behind you and pretend that you believe in the country. People just won't believe it. No, and people aren't buying it. But I wonder, in those red wall seats, whether people up there who said that they were loaning their vote to the Tories might just desert the Tories and go somewhere else, which might let Labour in, depending on who else is standing. I think a lot depends, Mike, on how the economy goes. Um, uh, you know, look at wage rates, for instance. Wages are, are increasing. Uh, the employment market's tighter. It's not just lorry drivers, industrial workers. A lot of other people are being paid more. And we've argued for a long time that uh, a consequence of having open borders, you know, an open uh, labour markets in the EU was was to suppress wages, mm. industrial wages and lower uh, low skilled wages. And we've said it for ages and the Labour Party and a lot of the free traders uh, couldn't believe it. And it's happened. I mean, it's actually happening. Mm. You know, you've got a tighter labour market. Employers have to pay people a bit more. And that will encourage a lot of red wall voters. So I think things like that probably will help the Tories. But it really, I mean, I think I suspect there'll be a, an election in, in, in something like, you know, two years time. You know, yeah, that's uh, what I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's the likely date. Uh, the question is, if Boris Johnson does reasonably well between now and then, he'll be leading the Tories into that election. And if he doesn't, Sunak will. Yes, I think that's about right. But the one thing I suppose in Boris's favour as well is that one thing he is pretty good at is winning elections. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I, if whatever, say, whatever you say about Boris Johnson, you cannot under, underestimate him as a communicator and as an effective politician. He's an extremely effective politician. I think, uh, you know, the, look at the Tories now in London, it's not going so well. But I mean, remember, he, you know, he, he won the mayoral election for the Tories. And that, to, uh, to be honest, Mike, now that's pretty unthinkable. Yeah, well, I mean, one place where Labour's doing well is, of course, in the leafy, rather wealthy areas of London. You know, which tells you an awful lot, doesn't it? You know, the Labour Party is no longer the party of the working class. It's the party of the chattering classes uh, and the laptop working from home brigade. Yeah, no, the, the, the Labour Party represents now rather like, I've said before, it's like a big version of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's most of their members are, are graduates, degree holders. They represent uh, a, a sort of open, liberal, progressive view of the world. And you have to be pretty well off to uh, to to afford that, mm. of course, and you have to be very very well off to be able to welcome into the uh, the country uh, the sort of policies that Sir Keir Starmer would be proposing. But but William, as ever, thank you for talking to us. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, he thinks there could be an election within a couple of years. I think he's probably right. I think there's no doubt that the Tory Party is constantly on the lookout for how to gain an edge. We saw it with Theresa May. She held two elections when she probably didn't need to hold one. Um, and the first one, of course, was worse than the one that she won before that. However, I think in Boris Johnson's case, he will have an election within the next two years. He will probably uh, get in again. He may not increase his majority, but he may not care about that. But the question is this, I'm putting a put to you. If there is an election in the next two years, if things don't improve, will you still vote for the Conservative Party? 0344 And if not, who on earth could you go for? The Reform Party are building up. They've got a 5% share of the vote now, which is the biggest they've ever had. Richard Tice told us that last week. We shall see whether they can build on that and whether they can actually make a difference in some of those northern seats that Labour lost to the Tories in 2019.
It's all fascinating stuff. Coming up, though, we're going to be talking to Norman Brennan about uh, those bozos calling themselves Insulate Britain. More like bringing Britain to a standstill. That would be a better name for them. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk to Norman Brennan, a guy that we speak to a lot on this show because he's a man that believes in old-fashioned policing, a man that believes in law and order, a man that believes in justice, and a man that believes in the operational aspects of the policing service being actually decent. And right now, that ain't the case. Very, very good morning to you, Norman. Yeah, good morning, Mike. I saw your tweet earlier uh, today, I think it might have been from yesterday, about these insulate Britain idiots who have been holding up the traffic on the M25 a couple of times this week. No doubt they'll do it again. Um, Most disturbingly of all, I saw um, a a piece of video footage of somebody, a police officer, female police officer, going up to these people who are sitting on the ground, asking if there's anything they need. I mean, what is going on? I mean, I'll be quite honest with you, Mike, it's, it's nonsensical. And there are pl- serving police officers all across Britain, retired officers like myself and members of the public that just look back in horror. I mean, these people are breaking the law. Mm. Uh, it's highway obstruction. And really, it's a technical breach of the peace. And a disturbing video, which I actually completely sympathised and understood, is a lorry driver or a van driver got out of his vehicle and started dragging them out of mm. the way. Right. Well, the, the thing is, how would you feel if you have just got back to work after this COVID business, probably a new job, you're going to the hospital, taking someone to a hospital or visiting them, need your vehicle to get to a certain location on time for your work, or actually go into the airport, and suddenly you're going to have to delay all of those appointments and possibly miss your flight? I mean, you would be absolutely outraged, wouldn't you? And I mean, the traffic's bad enough around the M25, as we all know. But for these people to to, to make it worse, and for such a ridiculously stupid cause, I mean, you can say Extinction Rebellion are, are off the scale crazy, but at least they're not actually asking for something which is so ridiculous uh, that you can at least have a row about it. These people just want you to insulate your house. Well, this is exactly it. I mean, there seems to be a number of absolutely nonsensical um claims of people or protest and it looks as though the belligerent and angry of society take to the streets or the roads at the drop of a hat that then causes huge numbers of police to be taken away from already reduced uh, areas of policing Mm. to come and police them then it's clear that the senior officers uh, told the police to take a softly softly um basically, to deal with it in a very Mm. softly, softly way. Um, And it's it's exactly what they've done. And what this has done is it has ignited a fury amongst the whole of Britain because the people of Britain are sick and tired of what they see as weak, Mm. woke, ineffective policing. Now, I can assure you frontline police officers want to police fairly and robustly. And the sad reality is, and I'm afraid to say it's like this, it's like we've got donkeys leading lions. Mm. And the problem is far up the tree of policing. And we have probably the wokest, weakest, ineffective senior police officers I've ever witnessed in 42 years of law and order. And the sad reality, Mike, it's going to get worse. Those people should have been removed immediately, given the opportunity to go home, or a series of police vans should be there, and they should have been put in the back and nicked. And the motorists should have been allowed to carry on their lawful day's work. The sad reality is, whilst the police sat down and asked the demonstrators if there's anything they could do to assist them, tens if not hundreds of thousands of motorists were delayed for often hours on a motorway on a hot day. And they are infuriated and I fully support and understand their frustration. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And everyone, uh, even those who think that, that, you know, they should be doing something to save the climate. You know, everybody's struggling at the moment to get to work. Everybody's struggling to get in around any of the roads around the centre of London uh, because it's so ridiculously overcrowded and the the streets have been completely remade in the image of some kind of pedestrian precinct. So, I mean, there's already a quite high level of frustration. And I wonder, I mean, the, the first thing the police seem to do whenever these guys go and sit down is they go and stand in a line in front of them as if to say to the to the motorists you don't do anything now you just have to sit here until they're finished well you're right and what does that do mike what it means is that the police are losing the hearts and support of the british public the ones that they the ones they sort of swear an oath to support 
And what does it say if motorists have to get out of their vehicle and drag these demonstrators away so they can carry on, so they can keep their jobs and keep appointments and get to the hospital and airports on time? Who are the police going to arrest then? Hmm. Is it the demonstrators or the law-abiding public? Well, the thing is, if the public under common law have a right to arrest or remove someone that is obstructing their way, they have a lawful duty to do that. It's, I, I'm ashamed. I can't believe I'm actually saying that I'm actually saying that the public may feel the need, and I've read many of their comments, to take the law into their own hands mm. when sometimes dozens of police officers are there for whom the public expect them to act on their behalf mm. and allow them to carry on their way. They're acting lawfully. The demonstrators are acting in unlawfully, yet they're allowed to sit in the road for hours on end. Isn't there some kind of public safety a- aspect to this as well? That There was a, a car crash, I believe, yesterday. Now, you can't necessarily uh, connect the two events, but the car crash happened quite close to where some of these people were sitting down. So it's not inconceivable um, that it was it was connected in some way. Well, absolutely. The thing is, Mike, it's human nature for some when they've been caught up in a traffic jam or delayed like they were yesterday for a very long period of time to try and make up time. When they're trying to make up time, they perhaps don't drive as safely and carefully as they would do Mm. had they left plenty of time, which most of them did, to get to their appointments. As a result of that, many people are panicking to get to somewhere on time. They take unnecessary risks. Yes. That could cost somebody a very serious accident, a very serious injury, mm. or even their life. Yes. Are we going to let it? Are we going to allow it to get to that stage, Mike? Or are chief officers of police going to say, with the support of the government and the judiciary, is that enough is enough? We have to clear the roads and streets so the law-abiding public can go about their business. And the caveat to all of this, which really concerns me, Mike, is this. It's not the same as after World War Two, but let's compare it. After World War Two, Britain was pretty broken. So what happened was instead of everybody disuniting, being angry and belligerent, there was moral fibre, community spirit and respect. The sad reality is here we have an opportunity for Britain as angry as they are. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people's lives have been lost for people, even politicians as well, to say, for the next two or three years, let's put a hand out, let's be friendly, let's look out for each other, let's look after each other, and let's keep off the streets and roads and allow people to drive and go about their business and retain their jobs and hopefully build a stronger future. I see things getting worse, Mike, and I'm ashamed to say, I'm fed up doing interviews saying how bad things are. I know. I know. I, really would love well, I can't believe you. Ch- I can't believe you turned into Joan of Arc, though, Norman. That's the last thing I expected. Yeah, absolutely, and and I really am. I mean, there are few more formidable police campaigners than myself. Mm. But I also represent victims and the public. I, I hold quite a unique position in Britain, and of course, I always support the police. But when I think the police have got it wrong and the public have got it right, I will say so. Mm. On this occasion, the police have got it wrong badly wrong they're losing the support and favor of the public and the public are sick and tired of it and what i don't want to see is vigilantism on the streets of britain the way it's going mike over the next few years if the police keep failing the public day in and day out like they are at this moment Mm. in time i can see people taking the law into their own hands i don't want to see that and if police chief officers don't listen to my message i'm afraid they're part of the problem rather than the solution. I think you're absolutely right, and, and I don't think anyone wants to see that, but, but I can see it also developing. Maybe we should change their name from Insulate Britain to Tolerate Britain, Norman, uh, and see if they can actually just sit back, t- go around. Well, maybe it would be a better idea. We'd be going, going, go around to people's houses and insulate their houses if that's what they want, but don't sit on the M25 because that's not going to help anybody. Well, it's pretty intolerate Britain at the moment, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the public just want to be left alone, Mike. They just want to go about their business. We've all been hurt. The whole country, the whole world has been hurt. And here we are with angry, belligerent people. They're, they're, sort, of, they're sort of banging their chests, expressing their rights. Well, with rights become responsibility. Mm. Act responsible, allow 
other people like you to go about their business. If you've got a concern, take it up with your MPs and do it the right way. That's how all the rest of us have to do it. Yeah. I represent knife victims and homicide families, Mike. I don't get, and I could do, I could get hundreds of them across Britain to blockade the roads. We don't do it. They're trying to get on with their lives. Some people should be lucky that they've got a life, mm. that every day they get up, they don't have to remember that their son, brother, love, uh, mother or father has been shot or stabbed to death. That is my main concern, and that's what I deal with day in and day out. And when these people see these other people campaigning for sometimes ridiculous camp campaigns and reasons, they hold their head in their hands. And I think these people should think again before they hit the streets and the roads and disrupt people's lives. Very well said. Norman Brennan there saying uh, what I think an awful lot of people would want to say were they given the opportunity. Uh, these people from uh, this insulate Britain need to stop doing what they're doing. They need to think about what they're doing and need to be very careful that they don't do something which is going to put them and other people in harm's way because that is where we are right now. There's a great text here from someone who doesn't give a name. You can join in uh, at 87222. The way to deal with these home improvement terrorists doing their social blackmail do the same back to them tell them every time they do their antics someone will set fire to a pile of tires every time <laughs> that might stop them don't you think a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's say a very uh, good morning to Dawn Neeson, Daily Star columnist, former editor, of course, uh, and star of stage and screen. Dawn, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Great to join you. Now, listen, very nice to see you. We haven't had you on here for a while. Um, let's talk about the Royal Soap Opera, because front page of the Daily Mail today, High Court humbles Andrew over sex case papers, Charles Charity Chiefs quit over cash for access, and airbrushed Harry is a global icon. I mean, it's not a bad uh, day's work, is it, for the royal family? It's not. I mean, I have to say, I, on every day now, I'm feeling increasingly sorry for the Queen. I mean, you know, the poor woman's really rarely put a foot wrong throughout yeah. a very, very long career. And in the year she loses her husband, been by her side all that time, she has all this to deal with. I mean, I have no idea what she's thinking this morning. She picks up that time cover, Mike, and looks at this picture of Harry and Meghan. I mean, for all the world, I've, I've seen pictures like this before, right, in hairdressers. <laughs> it's when your, hairdresser, when your hairdresser stands behind you and looks in the mirror and goes, yes. oh, does Meghan her layers? That's what it reminds me of. Is he a husband or is he a hairdresser? Well, it's I mean, the, he, he looks as if he's been photoshopped within an inch of his life as well. Well, he has been talking of hair. Mysteriously, he appears to be the only member of the royal family that's growing it back. Oh, yeah. Lush, red-haired locks. But, I mean, you know, this is... They are, according to Time magazine, the most influential people um, in America, obviously not here. Um, and the picture speaks volumes. And it's... 
you know, they're included in the list with Britney Spears, Dolly Parton, and Naomi Osaka, the tennis player. Um, and it's like, they're influencers, but they're not, what, are they influencing you, Mike? All they're influencing me to do this morning is go and vomit somewhere, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, you I know, mean, they're, they're a very good influence on Plank of the Week, because we mustn't forget that they did actually win by far and away, by quite a margin, Plank of the Year last year. And they're on target to do it again this year, because every week well, they get carried stiff, over. There is some stiff competition, we have to admit, this year. But, I mean, who are they influencing exactly? I mean, you know, in America, they are regarded as celebrities, right? Mm. Here, we're looking at them and we're thinking, this is not the Prince Harry we all knew. No. You know, the cheerful, ruddy-faced, fun-loving, the soldier, the lad, the boy about town. He had character, he had personality. And, and now he looks like a, a hempecked hairdresser. These pictures are so emasculating, it's untrue. Mm. And it's influenced me now to think, every time I take a picture with me and my husband, not to treat him like as an accessory. I mean, she's almost wearing Yeah, I have like been she... meaning to talk to you about that because, you know, in fact, the first <laughs> thing I thought of when I saw this picture was that's like one of those pictures that Dawn puts out at the weekend. Yeah, I think it's true, to be fair. <laughs> but, I mean, she's, she's wearing Harry like she wears those ludicrously expensive accessories she's yeah. wearing. I mean... Try to sort it out with the amount of jewellery she's wearing in there. You know, who they, they're influencing Netflix and Spotify execs to throw money at them there. They're influencing Californian real estate agents and they're influencing other extremely woke Hollywood celebrities who are in a competition to get as far up their royal backsides as they possibly can at the moment. Yes. And it's all about how virtuous they are, how much they work for charity. And in the write-up of this piece, Mike, I mean, I really do stand by your sick bag. Um, they don't just opine, they run towards the struggle. Yes. Mm. That would yes. be the struggle of a £12 million, 11-bedroom mansion in sun-drenched California with yes. hot and cold private jets on tap then. Yes, but of course, yeah, but you see, you missed, you missed the whole point, Dawn, because it's not just because they're wealthy that they don't struggle. Because, of course, they struggle, because oh. they struggle with all manner of things that they can't talk about unless somebody pays them. <laughs> yeah, quite. I mean, the struggle is real. I'm really feeling for them, Mike. And, mm. you know, and the work they do with rescue chickens, I mean, I mean, total awe of that, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, I'm surprised you know, there's no animals in the shot. I mean, but it's quite a strange... I mean, people have t made quite a bit of this picture because I think they should. You know, the way that the hair comes forward uh, on her shoulders is very much a kind of I'm-in-charge uh, method, and apparently. Um, and also her stand, she's kind of standing... I mean, I know I'm probably going to be uh, um, accused of sexism here, but she's standing like a bloke to me. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's a very powerful pose. And if you read what all the body language experts say, and I'm a bit dubious on that science, to be fair, but, you know, you don't need to be a body language expert to analyse how she's standing. If you watch um, pictures of uh, um, uh, Donald Trump, and he and and, and uh, also Putin, yeah. they both stand like that all the time. And I think it's anything to do with their sex. It's that power pose, that sort of like legs, sort of like, you know, slightly astride, yes. hands on hips or like in front of you like that. And it's shoulders back, mm. chin up, looking directly at the camera. I was very good there, wasn't I? See what I did? Very uh, good. Meanwhile, meanwhile, he is sort of like hanging back. There's two pictures involved in this. The one that's on the front cover, and there's one inside where they are wearing like, look like office clothing in sort of like autumnal colours. Um, and again, She's the one, you know, sort of that masculine, direct, powerful pose. Whilst Harry is sort of hanging back behind her. Mike, she's a two-bit soap actress. I know. Here's an Afghanistan soldier. What is going on here? And the way Does that he... the hands are being held, right? She's, she's holding his hand, not the other way around. She's gripping his yeah. hand in her yeah, right that's... hand, and his left like, hand like... is overlapping her hand, right? Like a child. I mean, I've, I've joked before about these two that she really does keep his testicles in her designer handbag. But these pictures are not telling Don't tell me Nicki anything. Minaj. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, oh, God, don't even go there. <laughs> you need a very big handbag for that one. Don't you, you would. I, but it's like, you know, you, you, the writing was on the wall when the last podcast she did, which we all watched, obviously, I'm sure religiously, um, with Harry juggling in the back garden. I mean, how humiliating. I know. Mike, would you, you're, you know, you're, you're a man, allegedly. Would you do that? There's nothing alleged about that. There are many allegedly about me, but not that one. <laughs> it's just, 
It's so emasculating. I'm actually almost starting to feel sorry for Harry here, but he's letting her do it. I think he's worse. Actually, no, I disagree. I think that, you know, you would expect her to behave in the way that she does because of where she's come from and her Mm. background as an actress and, you know, trying to make it in Hollywood and wanting a bigger trailer than the next actress in the next trailer and all of that. You get all that. But he should know a bit better. And he should have not allowed himself to be taken down this particular path. That shot, by the way, that you're talking about uh, in the forest or in the garden looks suspiciously like the same spot uh, where they did that picture that we reenacted uh, with the barefoot, uh, yes, uh, the barefoot I, I prince. I'm reunited with the lovely Kevin on Plank of the Week with you. You can recreate that image as well. I'd love to see you and Kev strolling through a garden holding hands. I mean, that was just seared onto my brain the, yes. uh, the previous I know, absolutely. But let's let's touch on, just before we let you go, on uh, Prince Andrew, because, you know, things are going from bad to worse for him. And, of course, a lot of people who defend Harry and Meghan say, why don't you ever talk about Prince Andrew? Well, we do talk about Prince Andrew. He's now uh, hired a very, very high-powered reputationist lawyer who apparently is used to representing Hollywood superstars who have been accused of sexual assault. Um, mm. I, I wonder whether he is now in a, such a bad place that he can't get out of this at all. He either is going to have to pay out a, a bucket load of money uh, or he's going to have to go to the court and try and defend himself. I, I think he's in a very awkward situation. And, and, I, you know, and let's get one thing straight. Just because we have a go at Harry and Meghan for their patronising and hypocrisy, it doesn't mean that we are ignoring... The, the, the hideous mess that is Prince Andrew um, of his own making. I mean, the man is an arrogant fool and what he is putting the family through is also unbelievable. I mean, as I said, what the Queen thinks about, about this when she wakes up every day is astonishing. I don't know. That. But I mean, the thing is with Andrew, he is now, Mike, if he pays up, a bit like Michael Jackson before him, if he pays out to settle things, it's going to be a, a, a sign of guilt or taken as a sign of guilt. Mm. I don't as a member of the royal family he can actually do that i think he's going to have to at some point have his day in court and defend himself and let's face it if as he insists he has done absolutely nothing wrong why is he not standing up defending himself he can put all of this to bed by simply saying what happened putting his side of the story and backing it up with the proof now if you can't do that, you have to wonder what exactly was going on back in that day. Yeah. Um, but this is the only way out of it. He can't, Mike, he cannot afford, probably literally and financially, to pay people off because it just leaves everyone going, well, no smoke without fire. But that could also be the problem if he does go, because he could appear before a court in Manhattan um, and sensibly or insensibly it's a jury trial. The jury could decide that uh, it's not necessarily guilty because it's not a criminal scenario, but they could say that on the balance of uh, of, of belief, they believe her, yes. in which case that yeah. costs him more money because they would then award a monetary sum to her. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, Mike, with Andrew, you have got the very, very dangerous com- uh, um, combination of a supreme arrogance and supe- supreme stupidity. I mean, you know, the man is talking of planks earlier on, as thick as two short planks. I mean, he thought the um, the TV interview he gave was brilliant. Yeah. He thought he did really well. Well, I and thought it was brilliant, else... but not in the same way. <laughs> well, quite. And we were watching, like, we used to watch Doctor Who with kids from behind the sofa going, oh, no, don't say that. Stop. That's ridiculous. You're looking an idiot. Mm. Um, so, he, you know, as you say, if he goes to court, I think he's in trouble because he is arrogant and stupid. If he pays out, it's, it's just a hideous mess of his own making mm. and you look at all the pictures from back in the day of him and Epstein and it's like you must have known what this man was like and you were his friend yeah so it's it's it's, it's a fascinating story and as I said at the beginning of our chat Mike I mean I, my heart goes out to the queen not for the first time well, the only good news from her point of view is that all her, all her horses have done terribly well this year, so not so much for the kids, uh, but every single uh, Queen's racehorse, they've had the best year ever. So if you backed all of her horses, you'd have been in good shape. So hopefully she's made a few Well, you know, what, you know what? And it, and I don't blame her for caring more about her horses than she does her <laughs> offspring and her grandchildren at the moment, to be honest with you, because I think I'd rather spend time down the stables than with either Andrew or Harry. Yes, I think clearing out the stables might be a good idea for the royal family. But listen, Dawn, <laughs> well, great to talk to you. Be swept up in all cases, isn't there? Quite, exactly right. And get the buckets out. Dawn Leeson, Daily Star columnist, former editor, talking to us there about the whys and wherefores, the tribulations, if you like, uh, of the poor 
Duke and Suchess. Duke and Suchess? Duke and Duchess of Sussex. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, they're currently discussing in Parliament the whole business of Australia, America, Great Britain and some kind of submarine deal that's been done uh, to put the Chinese on the back foot. Um, we'll bring you news of that uh, as and when it comes. Keir Starmer's talking about it. Boris Johnson's made a statement. Uh, Liz Truss is the new Foreign Secretary. Of course, she may well have something to say about it as well. Um, seems a bit of an odd piece of timing, but let's leave that to one side for the moment. Let's talk to Professor Carol Sakura instead, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centre's founding dean, of course, at the University of Buckingham Medical School. Professor Carroll, very good afternoon to you. And to you, Mike. Very nice to see you. Now, I was pleased to see... Um, that uh, the, the, the reshuffle seems to have put a few people into some positions which might make things a little bit better. But for those of us who are not as steep, you know, sort of steeped in uh, Westminster culture and uh, the Westminster bubble, it doesn't make much difference to us. What, let me ask you this question first. How do you think Sajid Javid is doing as health secretary? I think he's doing very well. He's a very pragma- pragmatic sort of chap. And that's what you need for the health mm. service trying to be a doctor he's not trying to be a scientist he's just doing just a good organizer and that's what we need we need more people like him in the nhs to deliver the, the wishes of uh, we're paying for it and uh, you know a lot of the nhs services are very difficult to access for people you know if you look at corporates around the world they make it simple you look at airlines for example it's so easy i can do their websites the nhs website i've been a consultant 40 years i struggle with it all it's clunky it's mm. horrible and uh, no efforts put into it because it's not a consumer-driven service. I think Sajid has the opportunity to make it that, and that's what we all need. Yes, but- absolutely. And you were talking earlier on uh, on Twitter about the, you know, yet more kind of, you know, concentration on COVID. You know, can we not get away from it? And I keep saying the same thing, Professor, that, you know, surely it's time now for the government to, to pivot away slightly from just talking about covid but I'm already seeing notices from various health trusts saying, oh, we've now suspended all operations uh, because of increased numbers of COVID patients coming into the hospital. You know, did they not learn anything from last year? No, it's, it's unbelievable. If you actually look at the data, there was a period about five days ago when the numbers reached about a thousand admissions a day, but they've dropped. They're now 836 and the last day that counted was the 11th of September. So they're actually going down. Mm of people in hospital with COVID-related illness is less than 6,000 out of a total of 140,000 beds. So it's a small percentage. What we've got to do is structure services so we carry on with diagnosis, with surgery for cancer, surgery for heart disease, all the important things, and surgery for hips and knees. You know, these are as important, and yet they've all been cancelled in some places. There's no reason to do that. We just have to move forward. Yeah. Private Hospitals haven't cancelled them, so why should the NHS? Well, exactly right. And there still seems to be a problem with social distancing, a problem with people who have been told to stay home because they've been pinged in some way, shape or form, and also a problem, generally speaking, with staff shortages caused entirely by uh, the kind of outsourcing, if you like, to locums and to uh, private nursing agencies. Exactly. And, uh, you know, until we get away with it, as you said earlier, until we get away from the idea that there's a big problem, and of course, the government has to have a backup plan if we can't get away from it. So plan A and plan B is good, the concept. But let's concentrate on plan A. Let's gradually get out of everything. No, um, what we call non-pharmacological interventions, NPI, the ones you just mentioned, masks, social distancing, uh, bubbles and so on. Let's please not get back to that. There's no need to. And uh, uh, I'm sure this curve is going to go down and we'll get into winter. Everyone's worried that winter's going to do something because it makes us go inside, we're close with each other. We've done that already. The schools are back, the universities are going back, trains are full now. The commuter train where I live is pretty full in the morning. We're all sitting in seats, people are standing again. And, uh, uh, you know, you struggle to get a seat where I get on. So uh, this is good for the economy, good for society. And does that not tell you as well, Carol, that 
a lot of people were waiting to be told to come back to work because, you know, I don't blame people necessarily for wanting to work from home, but I don't think it's the way forward. Um, but it seems to me that an awful lot of people have completely sort of thrown off the shackles of, uh, of, of fear or whatever it was that they were suffering from, because I see it here in London every single day. In loads of people streaming out of London Bridge Station, loads of people streaming into it at, at, at the end of the day. And clearly now that they've been told to come back to work, they're all back. Yeah, and it's, it's business as usual. Yeah. There's still, I went up to Birmingham yesterday to a conference for the first first conference I've actually been to in person for, for a long time to give a talk. Mm. And, you know, when you go out to London, people, especially older people, looking scared solid with masks and goggles, mm. gloves, cans of disinfectant. Uh, you know, what good do they think it's going to do them? Nothing. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you cough, everyone turns around in the carriage to look at you. You know, yeah. I'm on my coffee at one point. Everyone looked at me after <laughs> I got COVID. And I had to show my COVID passport to get into the convention centre in Birmingham, which I was shocked yeah. to have to do that. Yes, indeed. And some places seem to be operating that system. However, um, you know, the government have said they're not going to bring it in unilaterally or across the board, at least. And I think that's the right thing to do. Um, what's your take on the vaccination of 12 to 15 year olds? Because that's been something which has been very controversial. I think an awful lot of parents are uneasy about it. And, and they should be. Uh, basically, when you've got the Joint Committee of Vaccination Immunisation, JCVI, they didn't want to do it. They planned not to do it. Went back to the politicians. They got the chief medical officers from four countries of the UK to consider it because they wanted it done. Mm. And they recommended it should be done. So you've got the scientific committee with all the experts on vaccines, immunization, pediatrics, and children's medicine, you know, saying no. And you get and they're agreeing no. And then it's overturned by the politicians. This is craziness. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think the very fact that JCVI didn't want to proceed means that most parents, and, you know, my kids are too old for this sort of thing, uh, certainly older than 15, they, they, the parents should consider it very carefully. The real problem is the heart damage that can occur, a mm. you know, small percentage. But these children at that age don't get serious COVID. Mm. So risk-benefit is highly in favour of the risk rather than the benefit to the patient. Well, that's right. They've already also kind of um, given in on the basis of it's not recommended for children uh, for their own um, physical health, but it is recommended for their mental health. And I think that's the first time I've ever heard a recommendation from um, a, a scientist to give a child something which is not good for them physically, but will be good for them mentally. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, no, I, mean, well, I think what was meant was that it may stop the schools closing but um, because of uh, serious COVID. But I really don't think that's the issue. And no. The idea that to immunise children to protect older people is craziness. Just isolate the older people yeah. like me. And also, the only reason the schools were closed was because the government closed them. You know, they, they, all, all they have to do is change their policy and say, we're not closing the schools. Simple. Exactly. Forget bubbles, forget year bubbles and all this sort of thing. Complex totally misunderstood by everybody and uh, let's carry on with business as usual yeah. we're out. Now, you'll, you'll, you'll remember probably with as much um, chagrin as i will uh, when you and i spoke about this time last year carol and we both agreed more or less that covid had kind of died out it wasn't around very much we'd opened the pubs in july and there wasn't really much evidence that there was there was a return uh, of it um that happened to, to be right at the time but turned out not to be right a couple of months later do you see this in any way comparable to last year? Because people keep saying, oh, there's more people in hospital now than there were last year, but we've all been vaccinated. So what's the situation? I think now we're coming out of it. And there's no doubt we've got this peak. It's much flatter than before, despite the doom mongers uh, uh, that, that go on the Today programme for the BBC and tell us there could be 7,000 admissions a day. That seems most unlikely, because if there was going to be that, the curve would be upwards every day now. And it's not, it's downwards. And yet we're all mixing socially far more. I had a uh, my wife's serious birthday party on Saturday. We're all dancing, all these old people Well dance. done. Well done indeed. Abba records, though. You know, Abba is the one for old people. <laughs> it always works. Well, listen, I mean, I, I defy anybody to not dance if you put an Abba song on. I mean, that has to be done. But I think we all feel like that as well because it's joyous, isn't it? I mean, you know, I remember going out for the first time to the pub and seeing people standing at the bar and thinking, this is great, you know, because you forget what it's like, you know. 
people uh, out and about um, in Borough Market is busy again. You know, going to restaurants which are full, watching people at football matches, standing cheek by jowl. I mean, they can't possibly say, oh, I'll tell you what, in three weeks' time, we're going to change the rules. You're going to have to show a vaccine passport. It doesn't make any sense. No, and, and that's so good for our mental health, the whole of society, to get out and about. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, sophisticated in your entertainment or not sophisticated. Mm. It doesn't matter what you do. It's vital that you can socialise again and take part in life to the full. And I think that's what we can do now. Yeah. Forget Andy, please. Yes, I think so. And do you think that there will be a chance that uh, that this could somehow get worse in the winter, not because the NHS claim that it's going to get worse, not because the NHS say that they haven't got the, the wherewithal or the bandwidth to deal with all the people coming into hospital, but, but actually worse in the sense that there could be some new variant. I mean, I know we can't always predict these things, but it seems to me that, that we have got through the worst of it. What's interesting, uh, since the, uh, the Delta variant, which came from India at the beginning of the year, it started, then took over the whole... A portfolio mm. of infection around the place. There's been nothing new. Um, the mu variant turns out to be a bit of a red herring. This is one that came uh, about three months ago. So it looks as though we're okay. It looks as though there's nothing more to come, which means we should get out of it. And by Christmas, despite the winter pressures, there will be winter pressures in hospitals that have been since I've been a consultant for, for 40 years. Every year, you have to close down certain activities because there aren't, isn't enough capacity to deal with older people coming in with chest infection, usually secondary to the flu, but other viral illnesses. Mm. That will still be there, but that doesn't mean we need to close down society. We no, need of course. To NHS. And you'd think that the NHS would have learned from that. But my fear as well, Carol, is that the NHS has gone through yet another winter of discontent, if you like, hasn't really changed the way it operates, hasn't really made any leeway possible for, you know, dealing with something similar if it comes along. And we're still back in the same old place that we've been for about the last two decades, where somebody's going to cry, you know, don't overwhelm the NHS. We're in crisis. We haven't got enough beds. We haven't got enough doctors. It's the same story every year. It is. And, you know, the real problem and why the NHS gets increasingly under pressure is that older people come into hospital with an illness that may take seven days to sort out, like the chest infections mm. in winter, and you sort them out, but then they can't go back to anywhere. The nursing home, the care homes don't take people that are ill, so they can't go there for rehabilitation. Families have washed their hands of older people, by no means all, but on the whole, society has washed its hand, which means there's nowhere for them to go. Mm. So they hospital for a month and that is just terrible that they sit in a bed for a month when there's no need for them to be there they don't want to be there they want to go home uh, but they can't mm. and, and that involves social care and it involves 24-hour nursing in homes and so on and we've really not developed it you know the futurists say we'll get robots out there to look after old people that's not feasible it's got to be human people yeah got their family or agents of uh, care systems. We've got to find better ways of looking at vulnerable old people. Yes. And uh, until we invest in that, we'll always have the problem. You know, it's at least six hundred pounds a day for a hospital bed in London. You could stay at the Savoy for that price. Yes. Uh, Absolutely right. But the food would be slightly better. Change things. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Because care homes are apparently not taking as many older patients as they should at the moment because they've got staffing problems because many of them are saying to staff if you're not double vaccinated you can't work here so even though they haven't quite got to the point of, of, of absolutely enforcing that many people who work in care homes are just walking away uh, and you know and they are lowly paid i mean the pay rates in care homes it's on the minimum wage many of mm. them there may be the odd qualified nurse and some, but most people have no qualification. They're healthcare assistants and they're paid about £10 an hour. Uh, and if you're in London, there's not much addition to it. And yet the costs of living in London, housing, everything, transport is very significant. So we've got to try and reprioritise how we look after society and pay the people that are doing, not just the, the guys that appear on telly uh, in, in the scenes mm. of COVID, in the intensive care units, but the, the people that never appear on telly because it's just too, it's just caring in a care home. Yes. And a few times you and I've spoken over the course of the last year or so, Carol, you've been encouraged by some of the catch up going on, particularly in cancer care where, where you work. Um, what's that going like at the moment? Is Has there been an, up, an uptick in the numbers of people being seen? 
There has been, and there's no doubt that uh, it, it's patchy. Though some places have made tremendous efforts to improve the diagnostic pathways that get you into a diagnosis of mm. serious illness, which is important because nearly all serious illnesses, cancer being the one I deal with, if you catch it early, the results are going to be better. And obviously, COVID stopped that. So it, there's now catch up going on everywhere. And there are still little blocks here and there. And, you know, general practice is not so welcoming now as it was even two years ago. And when I say welcoming, it's difficult to get to see your GP, certainly around our way. And the stories I hear from my patients is everywhere. Yes. And I think we've got to look at ways of accessing a health service in a much quicker way for everybody. Yes, and certainly Sajid Javid has come out and said that he wants more doctors to see more patients face-to-face because at the moment many of them are not seeing any at all. Some of them are only seeing half of the the patients that want to be seen. Exactly, and I think getting back to -to face-to-face contact is so important when you can see someone, you can see how distressed they are, you can maybe see the wife or the husband, some of the carer that's been with them, and you can then say, well, although there's nothing technically I can find wrong, there must be something, because clearly this patient's gone downhill since Mm. the last few months. The days of Dr. Cameron, Dr. Finlay, those great Scottish GPs (laughs) on television when I was a kid, you know, they're gone. Doctors don't know their patients anymore. At least GPs don't know their patients. So that means a telephone call or a a Zoom is not good enough. You've got to actually examine them. You've got to see what's going on. You've got to almost smell the smell and and touch them to to understand how bad, how serious it Mm. would be and then get the test done as quickly as possible. Well, we had that terrible story yesterday um, that was reported of a 27-year-old young woman who had kidney cancer who was not diagnosed for five months as a result of not being seen by a doctor. Uh, And because, obviously, virtual appointments don't work for that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, virtual appointments. I mean, my my teachers, when I was a medical student, would be horrified to think you could refer a, a GP doesn't have to examine the patient or a hospital doctor doesn't examine the patient. It's it's great for follow up. You know, I do a prostate clinic in the NHS. I've recently finished doing it, and amazing. Um, you, most of that can be done down the phone because you know the patients, mm. you know their history, they've had treatment. You're just following them up, so you need a blood test to measure the prostate activity, and you trust them to be peeing all right, basically, any change in your pee. And if you can do that on the phone, but you can't take a new patient and sort them out down the line. No. You have to see them. And are you worried, Professor, that, that there will be sort of NHS restrictions brought back just because they're so skittish? I think it's undercapacitized. There isn't enough capacity. There's rationing going on, even at the best of times before COVID. And and there will be rationing when we come to the end of it. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's eye surgery, whether it's cancer treatment, there is rationing. And as soon as one can admit that, one can move on and move forward. Mm. And I think there's a lot of political correctness that gets a lot of attention, equality and diversity. We all have to do training exercise every year. But the reality is, if you've got a, a good service, you don't need to worry. It's a good service for everybody. Yeah. And it doesn't matter your colour, your creed, uh, you know, you know, your sexual orientation, absolutely irrelevant to getting things moving, provided the service is good. Hmm. And, uh, and obviously non-discriminatory. You don't select out uh, all the white middle class people and push them to the top of the pile. Just, no one's ever done that. No. So, a new approach to how we run the NHS and how we prioritise services is really necessary now. No, exactly right. Professor Carol Sakura, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centres, of course, founding dean as well of the University of Buckingham Medical School, um, with an optimistic word, I think, about how things are, providing that they don't get changed for the worse by NHS types, by NHS people uh, who think that they are so scared of what might be coming that they change everything around.